Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of Greenrope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Festock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Theater. Hey, listen, are you really wanting to take the next step in your personal journey to really make a difference? I mean, really make a difference. I'm talking about the stuff that not only impacts your life, your family's life, but the next generation. Well, I think you might want to work with the company that brings people together to solve America's toughest problems. I'm talking about Dream Corps. If you want to know how you can join in the fight to win with love, that's how you win. I want you to visit www.thedreamcorps.org. That's thedreamcorps.org and learn how to fight with love because when we fight with love, we win. Hey, now I know that you enjoy these interviews, but wouldn't you like to be able to do a deep dive session with just your emerging leadership and your current executive leadership team to figure out succession planning, understanding how to build knowledge roadmaps and close the gap in leadership and institutional knowledge? Well, hey, that's what I'm also here to help you do. If you would like to learn about the High Level Wisdom Workshop, feel free to email me, chris at highlevelwisdom.com and let's have a conversation. Now, let's listen to this week's episode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's show. Listen, I am so grateful and thankful that you all are listening. If you have not had an opportunity to listen to some of our previous CEOs of this season, feel free. Go snoop around. Go listen to a lot of the different uh, episodes that we've had. And if this is your first time joining us here on High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders, I want to say a big thank Thank you for you coming and listening to the show. However you found us, uh, please let us know. You can find us on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at High Level Wisdom. And I guarantee you we'll make sure that we shout you out. Make sure you subscribe. Also, 
Don't forget that you can now find us on YouTube. Yes, we are on YouTube. And so we are dropping extra content, new things uh, to be able to share. We would love it if you would actually uh, go out, share, subscribe uh, and and leave us a comment. You can find us on uh, YouTube. High level wisdom for new generation leaders. Well, without further ado, I want to get into today's show because today's show is so, so interesting. I have the opportunity and I'm blessed to be able to talk to people from around the country and even around the world. Uh, and as we think about shows and uh, as we think about the type of people that we want to bring on, there's there's times where I meet people and it's kind of like uh, 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 a very uh, fortunate moment for me because you just realize that there are some people out here who are doing some magnificent work who are really impacting uh, the community. They're impacting uh, the way we see things. And more importantly, they're impacting uh, the now and the next generation. So I had an opportunity to meet the CEO of Dream Corps and the director for Green for All, Vien Truong. Now, listen, if you have no idea uh, about this woman, in this interview, I promise you, you will be thankful that you tuned in, subscribed and downloaded this episode today. Let me tell you a little bit about who she is. Now, she's not only uh, into uh, policy and helping structure uh, laws, but she is also someone who has done a lot uh, on building programs. She's helped advised on billions of dollars and yes, billions with a B in public investment for energy and community development programs. Uh, she's co-led coalitions to pass, implement and implement California's landmark Senate bill 535. Uh, definitely go check it out. If you haven't heard of this, uh, it created the biggest fund in history for the poorest and most polluted communities uh, and has reinvested over 800 million Yes, 800 million in disadvantaged communities um, that have been mostly impacted by the fossil fuel pollution. She's co-led the charge ahead for California, which placed one million electric vehicles in California in 10 years. Uh, she is a part of uh, the White House Champion of Change Award that she was able to receive for her work on climate equity. And the list goes on and on and on. Now, I have to tell you, and I know I'm taking a while to introduce her, but listen, this woman is very powerful. Um, she has a story. And I want you guys to really stop, take a moment and hear um, her background and understand how she went from uh, not only just being someone who uh, was an immigrant who grew up in Oakland, California, and not really seeing a whole lot of opportunity, but to land on opportunity, not only take it, but to rise to the CEO of a large company. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening today. And I want to bring you into my discussion and my interview with Vien Truong, the CEO of Dream Corps and the director for Green for All. Take a listen. Ms. Truong, how are you today? And I guess what I have to ask is, uh, as somebody who uh, has done so much in, in your short order of time, I just have to first say thank you. And 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 how have you uh, been able to keep up with this whirlwind of, I'm sure, press and the different things that you all have going on, uh, even this late into the year? Uh, well, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. And I'm a huge fan of your work and 
the topic of how do we build the bridge between young, accomplished leaders who may be millennials to our elders, our young elders, um, at a time when there's so much happening in our country, there is nothing more important than passing on wisdom, and your show is filling in that very important um, and big vacuum. So thank you for the work that you've been doing. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so, Vian, let's 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 start here. Mm-hmm. I, I want to start at the very beginning. I, I would I would like for you to share with me. Talk to me about your journey. I want to I want to mm-hmm. really understand. The, the beginning of what was it like growing up? Where did you grow up? Uh, what what was mm-hmm. kind of the culture? What were some of the societal things that, that you saw? And, and then walk me through, how did you even get into liking the world of politics and, mm. and the things that you got into today? Sh- share, share a little bit of that with me. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, you know, I usually don't like talking about myself, but I think today there's such a need for us to share our stories, especially stories from people who are like me, which is unusual as a Vietnamese, uh, ethnically Chinese, culturally Vietnamese leader um, who is on the cusp of being a millennial. Um, you know, there's very few stories like mine, um, so I will lean into that. My family came here as refugees. Um, as part of the wave of boat people from Vietnam. I'm the 11th of 11 kids from my mom. And when we came here, the only jobs that they could find, because they didn't speak English and all they've been doing is kind of working as fishermen in Vietnam, the only thing that they can find to do here was to be migrant farm workers. So what they did for three years in Portland, Oregon, picking strawberries and snow peas, me as a baby on their backs. When they finally graduated, from that job, they came to Oakland, California in the 80s, which is commonly referred to as the crack years in Oakland. And they worked in sweatshops for 15 years from the time I was three until the time I was in college. That's what we did. They made so little money that when I finally got into college, my um, financial aid officer looked at the paycheck stubs and said, there's no way your parents can only make 18000 a year with so many kids. Um, but sure enough, it was verified. And that is how much we made. I, you know, I have to say, even before I got to college, I was um, growing up in Oakland, where you're dodging bullets and stepping over crack, you know, crack cocaine pipes, um, broken on the streets. Uh, it's easier and safer to not go to school than to go to school because school is actually more dangerous. Um, we had drive-bys during schools. We had fights at school. People were triggered and they had all kinds of trauma in their lives, as they should. And so there were a lot of people who've gotten into fights because of a bad, you know, sideway look they got or because they were wearing shoes somebody else wanted or for any number of other reasons. By the time I was in ninth grade, I had already been a dropout. Wow. I had already got, been affiliated with gangs. I was already uh, had more friends and family members who were in jail or dead than I knew going to college. Hmm. And for me, it was much easier to imagine going down that route. My mom sent me to live with a sister in Massachusetts. Um, and there, for the first time, I learned what it meant to learn in school. I didn't have to worry about getting in a fight. I didn't have to worry about drive-by shootings. I didn't have to worry about lewd men trying to pick me up on the streets as I waited for the bus. And there I learned about economics and biology and 
you know, like most kids, when you give them a chance to succeed, they are hungry for it. They want it. Nobody wants to fail. So I got my act together and I got to college. And the reason is you're asking me why I went into politics. I didn't know I wanted to go into politics. I wanted to go into policy because I thought it was deeply unequal and unfair that there are some people in this country, whether it's Oakland or other demographics like Oakland, poor, underrepresented, people of color, new immigrants. I thought it was unfair that they would be relegated to live in communities or to be put into positions where they would never have a chance, as I did, to get out. Um, and so I've dedicated my life to figuring out how do we create those bridges, how do we create those avenues for people to be able to live their full lives. Wow. Um, there's so much to unpack there. So as you were talking about um, how different learning uh happened right so you go mm -hmm. from a neighborhood where there's more chaos going outside of the learning realm so it makes it hard to be able to enjoy learning and then being removed from that space I i'm curious mm -hmm. um did you did you know how different it was when you were that age in that in that physical change happened did you were you able to see the differences or did or were you able to realize mm -hmm. that much later in life when i was in oakland let me paint a picture of what it looks like first there were over 200 languages in my school everybody was in the free lunch line we were all poor so we didn't know that we were especially poor um and there was a lot of love i painted a picture of oakland being violent but there was also a lot of love and community there was a lot of solidarity um with us all experiencing the same thing when i watched tv and back then instead of the kardashians we had 90210 that's right <laughs> um and melrose place you know um and i thought those things were fairy tales like cinderella was a fairy tale um i thought there was I didn't think there was a real place in this country that had that kind of a lifestyle because it was never evident in where I, in the communities that I lived in. When I went to Massachusetts, I began to actually see a taste of that. Um, there were two swimming pools in the school I went to. There were biology and chemistry and economic courses. There were cheerleaders. I mean, I didn't even know that was a thing. There were sports teams. I didn't even know that was a thing. It did not exist in the schools that I went to. Wow. And, um, and I began to understand that the getting to college is a very real pathway and that was where i began to meet people who actually did go to college and i began to see that it was possible for them and maybe even possible for me and when you have that kind of shift you're able to then see that i can do that too um and then when i began to be able to apply to college i began to question why how could i leave other people behind in oakland and why weren't they getting the same opportunities and it's because I kept asking why and why not? Why not? Why, why were they not getting those opportunities that got me on the pathway that I did? Wow. So as, as you became more uh, what I would call self-aware and you were more aware of uh, the, the, the lack and you also saw uh, clearly the abundance of poverty, what what was kind of the, the, the aha moment that you had that gave you the, the energy uh, 
to want to be different than your environment. Because see, I, I understand very mm-hmm. well because I, I had the same sort of similar path. So I understand very well. But I think one of the things that I'm always curious in is I, when 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 someone is able to get beyond that sort of culture and they're able mm-hmm. to actually put you know, the, the, the small step in front of the next one in front of the next one. What was that journey like and how did you keep yourself motivated? I mean, because I'm sure for a very long time, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who were not interested in the things that you were interested in. And it was probably difficult because maybe you might have had, uh, like me, there were many family members who just didn't get it. So it was kind of difficult and you might have had a um, a phase or a season of isolation, you know, and started, you know, building brand new relationships that were so far out of the norm uh, from from what you grew up in. What how did that all mm-hmm. work and, and what kept you motivated to continue to keep striving for more? Yeah, I think it first started with that knowing sense inside of you that there has to be something greater than this. And I think everybody has that as a kid. The question is, do you have people around you who cultivates and supports that, right? Even when you don't know exactly where that's going to lead. And I was lucky enough to go from knowing that there's something greater than this and to have people around me who said, yes, there is. And let's help give you the space to explore what that looks like for you. Um, And, you know, those were the teachers around uh, around me. Those were the sisters that I had. Those were the community members that I had. You know, when I was growing up in the crack years in Oakland, I lived next door to a house of ill repute, is how they call it. Um, and there were a lot of women who were going in and out of trouble. And um, and in the moments of clarity, they would give me some wise counsel wow. about making sure that I would stay tenacious uh, and advocate for myself and what it means to be a woman and a fighter. You know, I had, there was everybody, I, I have a strong feeling that everybody that I meet it's an expert or is wise at something more than I am. And I try to embody the practice of listening deeply for that wisdom and that nugget of truth and um, advice and to learn from them, no matter who it is. Uh, and in my work since then as a growing young leader, and I still consider myself at the cusp of that now, my work is being very loyal to those people and to people who, um, to the communities that they represent. And my loyalty means that no matter where I am, to speak up for them in rooms that I'm in now, whether it's with CEOs of major companies or the congressional leaders or the U.S. senators, I bring their voices, their experiences into that room with me. And I remember how hard it used to be when I was sitting across the table from some of the people you see in the cover of Time magazine. Um, But for me, being able to speak not only my truth, but their truth, there's no point in getting to where I am now if I don't speak up for them. There's mm. no point of being at the table if you don't actually use your voice at the table to advocate for people who have gotten you to where you are and to fight for what they need now. Interesting. So I love uh, this line that 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 you all have, and I, I want you to speak to it because I, I think um, it leads us into uh, a further conversation for today. Um when I look through everything and I saw what you guys had and I, uh, certain things will stand out to me about uh, uh, unique pieces about the work that people do and how that ties into their everyday. And you all have this line here and I, I would love to kind of learn more about 
what this means to you that says we bring the best minds together to solve America's mm-hmm. toughest problems. Tell mm-hmm. me how that's tied to you personally and what you guys are doing um, in, in Dream Corps and share with me a little bit more about Dream Corps and, 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 and the, the, the who, what, when, where and why and how, how, how that's impacting what we see in our, in our everyday. Yeah. Well, first, I want to brag on some of the people we have at Dream Corps, why I can say that we are bringing together some of the best minds. We have a guy, for example, Shaka Senghor, who's actually just in the office right now behind me. And Shaka was, um, is a testament to resilience and leadership. When he was growing up in Detroit, he got in and out of trouble, eventually um, got into trouble. He murdered somebody out of self-defense and was sent to prison for 19 years, seven years of which was in solitary confinement. That could drive any normal person um, into despair and into the deep end. Instead, what Shaka did was write his story and write his wrongs. Um, That's the name of his book. His book, Writing My Wrongs, became a New York Times bestseller. He's been on Oprah twice. He's been in Oprah Magazine. Oprah calls him one of the top five favorite conversations that she's ever had in life, not just professionally, but also personally. Wow. We have the mayor of Mill Valley, right? We have the mayor of Mill Valley, uh, Jessica Jackson, who's leading our criminal justice team, helping to pass legislation. In the last year, we passed four pieces of legislation um, to humanize people, to give people a second chance, not just lock them up forever in prison. We have the president of San Francisco Unified here on our staff, leading up our work around politics and policies through our Love Army. We were founded by Van Jones, who of course most people know as the CNN commentator, but who also has a deep sense of commitment and strategy around how do we serve both um, red and blue states, uh, the underdogs in both of those red and blue states. And then me, you know, I came coming out of Oakland, having the experience of what it means to actually be forgotten and neglected and having had a history of winning and moving billions of dollars for the very communities to create a robust economy. These, I, I can go on forever um, on how proud I am of our 40 uh, staff members who are on staff. For me, what it means is not only who we have on staff, but also who we work with. We do work with folks from Reed Hoffman to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. We work with Mark Ruffalo, you know, ALS celebrity, Oscar-winning star, to moms from Flint, Michigan. Um, we work with so like Black Lives Matters founders to Newt Gingrich on solving the opioid crisis. Um, it is the dichotomy, and we sometimes argue with some of them for some different pieces and <laughs> completely disagree with them on other pieces. Newt, sure. Right? Um, but at the same time, we also have some common ground that we're trying to work with. Um, for example, addressing opioid crisis, closing prisons um, to make sure that we're giving people a second chance. So I'm very proud of the fact that we are bringing together the best minds in the countries, whether you're in Wall Street or Main Street, whether you're in D.C. or Flint, Michigan, and really working to create solutions at a time when people are just focused on fighting. Wow. Wow. That, that, is, that is awesome. And I think that um, what I love about what you're saying is and you're showing is that it takes a village and you guys are pulling the village of influencers and those who who understand in order to be able to bring about change. And I think that's that's such a um, a, uh, a a lost part of the story for many 
organizations, uh, the people, how it all works together. And so um, I, I think that's that's awesome. So I, I want to shift gears here and talk mm-hmm. about uh, some perspective. So you've seen uh, how policy works. You've you've been able to watch something go from an idea in a restaurant to we're trying mm-hmm. to get it passed in between the House and Senate. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm curious as to over the last 10 years, let's say, and you've seen this rise of uh, this 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 group known as the millennials um, who have disrupted every single industry every process, you know, whether it's through a company and even in the political scene. What would you say is different today that millennials are doing that is impacting the world of uh, policy, the world of politics that might be different than what you had probably seen in the past 10 years? Yeah. Um, Talk about the good and what I think is some of the growing concerns that I have. I think this group has been really misdiagnosed as the me generation. In fact, I think this group of millennials are more concerned about causes and purpose than ever before. It's not just about working for a paycheck. It's about what is the purpose? What is the real reasoning? You see their consumer dollars being spent in that way. They're more likely to invest in products and to purchase things that have a cause behind it, that has a good social justice kind of purpose or, or benefit around their products or the way they operate their companies. And that is fantastic news. Um, around that, they're more likely to be able to be willing to sacrifice some of the um, things that previous generations um, wanted. So for instance, you see more millennials who are willing to live two or three people in a small space, in a small apartment or studio even, in order for them to live in a community that is more accessible, that is more walking and biking friendly, that is more hip and happening. And that's really, that's great. It's more about how do we actually um, understand quality in a more interesting and a more dynamic way. One of the things that I worry about is the, um, increasing kind of segmentation of our communities and how do we make sure that even that we translate that want for quality to thinking through about what does that mean then in your impact to other groups who may live outside of your comfort zone how do we think about the impacts of your work and your work product to somebody downstream so for instance let me translate this into um, a tech company right or into the design of products around um, a tech company. If you are looking at creating a product that may be about, I don't know, let's just say advertising for um, uh, one particular product, how do we make sure that we're creating the product in ways that best serves a diverse consumer base? How do we make sure that we're hiring people at your tech company to best inform who needs those products and how do we best make sure that the creation of that or the, the employees reflect the consumer base that you're wanting to have? I don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you. I can unpack that more, but. Uh, no, it, it absolutely does. And I think the, the, the part that is um, interesting that I, I, I've never thought about that side is the fact that when you step back and look at 
uh, how we go about uh, business today, uh, from what I'm gathering and what you're saying is, is that we have to begin to look at the people side for much more than just uh, an exchange of a good and service. But we have to see it broadly. We have to be able to right. we have to be able to unpack, you know, all the different pieces, all the perspectives and how we making sure that it's well represented, uh, you know, depending on the organization or whatever it is that you're after that, that it's it's a it definitely makes sense to me. And there's a couple of pieces. Me, that, right. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Well, Dream Core includes Yes, We Code. And yes, we code is about making sure that we're connecting people, people of color um, who may not traditionally be tracked for the Silicon Valley tech jobs. So make sure that we're giving them training and then giving them placements inside of tech companies. And we have a $6 million scholarship to help do that for people who may not be able to afford boot camps. When we do that because we understand the importance of diversity for any company, but especially for tech companies that are shaping the future of our economy by coding. That's right. And here's an example of why I say it's important to understand from the life cycle of your products and to have perspective around that. I was talking about the proliferation and growth of AI and robotics to some of these tech giants and the importance of making sure that we're thinking about social social justice and um taking into account what kind of data they're using or not using, and even the data that they're using, how skewed they can be. Now, concrete example. I was walking down the street in San Francisco with a friend, and all of a sudden I see a robot, a robot taller than me, circling the block. Imagine how confusing that would be for a person. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it was just a normal neighborhood. I mean, it was a transitioning neighborhood or a gentrifying neighborhood. And I stopped and I looked at my friend and said, what in the... That is a robot. And apparently this robot has hundreds of cameras around them, and they circle with the blog to kind of be a security guard. Um, now, for a person like me who grew up in Oakland that is over-policed, um, my question then would be, how do they understand a threat? Hmm. Are they taking color to play? Are they thinking, well, if I'm, a, if I'm a black man, then I am more of a threat because of the data they were fed into assessing. The, the natural right? bias in the data itself. That's fascinating. The natural bias in the data itself. And so my concern is, as, as we're beginning to be a more tech-heavy economy and future, how do we make sure that people who are working in these jobs actually understand the mindset of what it all look like in terms of the impacts to consumers or people who are interfacing with their products? Wow. Wow, that's we could literally spend the next hour on that just alone. That that is fascinating. And and I think um, some of the natural bias uh, and you guys, you, you know, you could, I'm sure, tell me through the research that you all have done over the number of years. But I don't even think that some of the natural bias is deliberate. Some of it is just. They're using the data and they're putting it into the system, but no one ever looked at the data to say, is it really clean? You know, what mm -hmm. what are we missing? And so is that sort of, you know, true for what what you all, you know, normally see and what you're trying to get after with, you know, working with some of these tech giants? Well, you know, not across the, you know, I, there's a term called tech data dummies, right? And there's, it's termed that for a reason, because you want to be able to understand the data that you're getting. Um, and you want to be able to question the data and how do you use the data appropriately and not, not, not um, inappropriately. I mean, criminal justice 
for instance, you, if you look at the data at first glance, you might see um, that people of color, men of color, black men in particular, are more likely to be seen as criminals. Okay, well, let's understand behind that, there's an over-criminalization and a racialized way of policing communities. So the data that you're getting is skewed. And that's just one easy number. But if you're applying that across the board in so many different ways, you gotta be able to question the data. And um, the term data dummy refers to people who don't have the sophistication to understand that. And it, you know, we're in a country now where we have so much data and so little wisdom, and that's a problem. And so the reason why I lean into this a little bit is because I see a heightened, a heightened want to have convenience, a heightened want to think less and to rely on data more. And that trend actually makes me really worried as we continue to see a widening gulf between the have and the have-nots and the widening influence of data and technology on our daily lives. Um, so, I mean, I will, I will say that, and, you know, one of the things that we want to do in the push for our Yes We Code team is to make sure that we give more perspective inside of these tech companies. Because if you are a person like me who grew up in Oakland and experienced friends and family getting killed and getting in jail more than they see going to college, I understand that these data can be these data points can be skewed. Sure. Um, you want to have people who can give you more perspective around these things because it helps your company's bottom line, but it also helps to make sure that we don't have unintended consequences. Wow, that that is fascinating. So. So when you talk about these unintended consequences, obviously um, that takes a strong leader um, who is at the helm willing to listen to what your organization and others are bringing to them, right? Helping to raise those concerns. Now, one of the things that uh, we do on our show is we, I'm always talking to CEOs of, you know, companies across, you know, across the country. And, and, and I learn a lot from them. Most of them are in the for-profit space. Being a 501c3 or, or or being in the what is also known as the not-for-profit space, as an executive, you know, before you were kind of looking uh, from afar at the executive space, right? <laughs> um, uh, some Most executives that I talked to, they kind of fell into leadership. Some of them were really seeking it, but you don't seem like somebody who was really seeking it. It just uh, became a part of as you grew uh, as a natural leader. I'm interested and curious to understand your perspective on uh, what gaps there might be from your perspective uh, in, the, in, in, in executives in the not-for-profit sector. And, and which ones do you feel really need to be addressed um, by the individual? You know, it, in nonprofits are built and structured to serve uh, social good. And, um, and that's from, you know, being a ballet to being a church to being a civil rights organization or racial justice organizations or environmental justice or economic justice. In order to best serve those end goals, uh, you want to have an executive who can understand what what the community perspective is and to have proximate experience to the community they're trying to serve. Um, and proxim proximity can be developed by either being a very good listener and understanding the people you're trying to serve, or you can be living in the community or you can have had experience in the community. In my case, I try to do all three, listen, be in the community, I still live in Oakland, and to be able to rally my experience growing up in the ways that I did to best serve our constituents. What I see now is a lack of, um, a lack of kind of um, 
leaders who get the opportunity, leaders who have that experience to get the opportunity to really lead nonprofits. When I look around at other CEOs of large organizations um, similarly sized as we are, um, I don't see many women. I very rarely see women of color who are leading these organizations, um, and certainly um, not many millennials. So I wanted, one of the tables that I sit at is the CEO group uh, for the major environmental organizations out there. Um, and I am the youngest and woman of color who is at the table. And that hurts for, not, I mean, for me, it's fine. I'm comfortable there. But, um, you know, I went to law school. I went to, you know, some of these places where this is the norm now. But it hurts the country to not have leadership at that level that can best reflect the needs of people who are in the communities. So I think that's a, that's a huge need. I think other things that um, is needed more than ever now is an ability to have um, institutional knowledge and experience and wisdom passed down. Um, in an increasing um, country where people are relying on social media or apps, there's so little conversations around the table um, around what people are experiencing. How do they understand the experience or the problems, especially now with um, the plethora of attacks that families are getting economically, environmentally, uh, on their social justice or civil rights. Um, how do they get attacked and how do we understand the experience uh, and develop solutions as a community together? I think those things are huge needs. Absolutely. So when you talk about these needs, um, how how can... How can how can they be addressed in such a way that can show progress? Because I, I would imagine some of these needs are um, uh, uh, the lack of something from that particular individual, but then some of it just might be um, the the environment. And as you talked about, you know, uh, looking at you know needing to pass down that institutional knowledge. What are some of the best practices and some ways that you've seen uh, passing down institutional knowledge uh, can work? And what are some of the failures that you think that you've seen um, uh, in that as well? Mm. You know, for me, uh, one of my one of my most important mentors is Van Jones, and um, he's a friend and a mentor and my board president. We talk every day about um, both the status of the organization, but also how we understand the country and how do we learn the lessons of the people who came before us and how they navigated these fights and how do we then understand what are, what are the ways that we, we, we um, synthesize those lessons from our predecessors, um, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's in business, whether it's a nonprofit space. Um, whether it's political experiences, how do we understand and synthesize the lessons of people who came before us and then apply it to the new technology that we're learning now from our younger staff? We have amazing digital organizers, um, people who understand how to use social media to create virality um, around an idea. How do we match the lessons of the um, people who came before us to the new creativity of the people who um, are teaching us new tools and technology? And so for me, I think that when you have a person who is a thought partner like that with you, you can really go very far um, in what you can do with your organization. I think what happens poorly um, 
is when you don't have that dialectic, when you have um, uh, leaders who are fending for themselves. I, gen- I have never seen um, conversations that actually moves people to the wrong side. Um, I think because if you're an effective leader, even when you're getting bad advice, what you're able to do is to sit with the information and you're able to sit with um, some, a bit of centeredness to deduce from it what is helpful and exclude from it what isn't, um, and then to go from there. I hope that you are able to see just as much as I've been able to see how fascinating Miss Vian Truong is. I mean, the things that she's been able to do, the things that she's seen, the the story that she holds is fascinating. And so I know this is just the halfway point of this interview, but thank you so much for listening. Do us a favor. Make sure that you share this interview. Tell us what you thought about. What are some of the things that kind of stood out to you that you heard so far throughout this interview? Find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us with the handle at High Level Wisdom. You can also go to our website, www.highlevelwisdom.com. Leave us a comment, share your thoughts, your ideas, and listen to the insights. And let's have a conversation. That's really what it's about. Thank you guys so much for listening. We look forward to sharing part two of my interview with you, uh, with Vienne, in just a couple of days. Thank you so much. I hope that whatever you choose to do today, that you do it at a high level. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.